Luke 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants, to whom he had given the money, to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Now let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray now for your help. Your spirit would come and give us wisdom, give us insight into your word. We acknowledge that you are good, your word is true, and that we desperately need to have your word shape us, form us into the people that you have called us to be. So we pray for your help now, in the name of Jesus. Amen. The summer that I spent serving as a counselor um, at uh, Evangelical Free Church Bible Camp in Iowa, called Hidden Acres, uh, it was when I was in college, and uh, the camp director there, uh, Earl Taylor, liked to say that we were not there for a vacation. This is not a vacation, he would say. We were there to do the Lord's business. And he also liked to remind us that everything on the camp property, from the vehicles uh, to the buildings to the canoes that we used in the lake, even the forks and spoons in the cafeteria did not belong to us to do with as we pleased. That it was owned by the camp, which belonged to God. So he'd say, remember, you're using God's things to do his work, so take care of them. And in everything you do here, you're doing business with God. Well, Jesus is saying a similar thing here in our passage this morning. He's showing his disciples and us that our lives are not our own. 
And nothing that we have is our own. We are doing business with God in all that we do in our lives. We recall that the Lord Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and he had uh, to pass through the city of Jericho on his way there. Jericho is about 18 miles uh, north of Jerusalem and while he was there in Jericho, he restored the sight to a man who had been blind. Uh, And though he was blind, he still recognized who Jesus really was. That's at the end of chapter 18. He recognized that Jesus was the promised son of David. He, he, he acknowledged that. He called out to, to Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth as the son of David, the son that God had promised to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, whose kingdom would never come to an end. He's the king. He is the king, the savior king that God promised. And then last week, we read about a chief tax collector whom Jesus had come to save in Jericho. Uh, Zacchaeus was his name, and he repented of his thievery, and Jesus declared that this lost sinner had been found by him who had come to seek and to save the lost. And if we look ahead in our, our text we'll see that our next passage is when Jesus arrives at the city of Jerusalem and will enjoy a king's welcome there with hosannas and palm branches being waved and cast out into the street ahead of him as he rides into the city on a donkey. And so we can understand that those who are in Jesus' company here who may have been anticipating that they were just days away from seeing Jesus ascend to the throne in Jerusalem and experiencing the very beginning of his earthly reign where he would subdue all of Israel's enemies. Before he left Jericho, Jesus had a teaching session then with his followers that began with a word of correction, then emphasized their need for faithfulness, And it ended with a warning of the reckoning that is sure to come, just not in the immediate future, like some of them may have expected. So here's our theme from uh, this passage this morning. Our main theme is that we are called to be faithful with what the Lord has entrusted to us in the midst of a hostile environment. Called to be faithful with what the Lord has entrusted to us in the midst of a hostile environment. First there, just the first two verses, 11 and 12, we see that Jesus provides a word of correction regarding the kingdom. Verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, an old man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So Luke, once again, provides us with a good deal of help in these verses, for he tells us the purpose for why Jesus told the following parable. If we were wondering what the point of this parable may be, which everyone, of course, does who hears this parable, then it's incredibly helpful for us to know why Jesus taught the parable on this particular occasion. The disciples knew where they were heading. And there, were, and there were more with Jesus than just the 12 disciples. There would have been a great host of people traveling with him from Galilee 
on their way to Jerusalem. After all, it was the Passover, one of the most significant religious festivals of the Jewish people. Everyone, it seemed, was going to Jerusalem. And most were well aware of the mighty works that Jesus had accomplished in his three-year ministry. They had seen or heard that Jesus had power and authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to restore restore sight to the blind, to feed thousands of people with just a bit of bread, and to even to raise the dead. They were anticipating that they were going to be a part of a revolution. Jesus was going to lead this revolution and would successfully overthrow Rome and begin to reign over all Israel as David did. They believed they knew when they would see the kingdom come. They believed it was just days away. In verse 11, Luke uses the word translated because twice to tell us why Jesus taught the parable to the people. Look at verse 11 again. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And then he said, therefore. So they weren't all that different than than so many believers in our own generation. If there's one particular area where the church could really use a word of correction from the Lord, it is in the doctrine of eschatology or the doctrine of the last things. There are so many different views of when Christ's kingdom will actually come or when Christ will truly begin his earthly reign. And, and, and we see that it's basically always been that, always been that way. And so he had to use a parable here in order to teach his followers that things weren't going to take place in the way they were anticipating that they would. Of course, you know, there are many other beliefs and practices and ways that Christians are living out their faith that that could use a word of correction from our Lord, and that is why we see the Lord do this type of thing quite often in the Scriptures, giving a word of correction. I mean, if you read Paul's letters in the New Testament to the churches, it seems that in every one of those letters, Christ is speaking a word of correction to the churches through the Apostle Paul. One of the main reasons that we, uh, for, for why we need to be reading the Scriptures regularly, if not daily, is so that our wrong ideas and our wrong perceptions about things will be corrected. In fact, if we never find ourselves being corrected by God's Word, We either are not taking what God says very seriously, maybe we're not really even thinking about what's actually being said in God's word, or we're just simply not listening. Because God's word corrects us. Jesus is correcting his people here. So in verse 12, Jesus introduces his parable. We already know the purpose for the parable is to correct the false perception that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately as in Once they arrived in Jerusalem. But Jesus teaches, no, rather, it's more like a nobleman who went into this far country in order to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. It seems Jesus is saying that actually it won't come immediately. It will 
he will have to go away, like into a far country, in order to receive this kingdom, and then will return again at another time. Therefore, don't expect it immediately. In fact, if you are expecting that that, that is what will happen once Jesus drives, uh, arrives in Jerusalem, they were going to be sorely mistaken. For back in chapter 18, he had basically already told them what was going to happen there. If you look back at verse uh, 31 through 34 of chapter 18, he says, Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So will the disciples be ready for all that to happen? We're going to find out that they were not ready for that to happen. So the question then for us is, those of us who follow Jesus today, will we be ready for when he returns? Will we be prepared for it? Will we be prepared to wait for the coming of the earthly reign of Christ? Well, that will depend on how we respond to Jesus' teaching in this parable. For he is teaching us how we are to wait for his return. What we can do to prepare for the coming of the kingdom of God. So now verses 13 through 19, we see the Lord's servants will be rewarded for their faithfulness in the midst of a hostile environment. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minutes and said to them, engage in business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him and that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your men has made 10 minutes more. He said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your men has made five minutes. And he said to him, and you are to have, or you are to be over five cities. So we must remember that this is a parable that Jesus is teaching here. Parables are stories which the Lord used to reveal a truth about the kingdom of God. It's, it's not a direct allegory where everything matches up perfectly with how it will actually be played out. This parable in particular teaches us comparatively with how we are to think about the Lord's departure and return. Uh, the nobleman in Jesus' story points us to, uh, 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 points us to Jesus for Jesus was about to enter Jerusalem, but rather than set up his earthly reign in Jerusalem, he was instead going to ultimately be rejected there by those in power, and he would be crucified. And after three days, he will rise from the dead, as he revealed to his disciples back in chapter 18. But then after a time, he would depart and leave his servants with a particular calling. And we're going to take a look at that particular calling back in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, if you want to take a look there yourself. And we can see just what this particular calling was that Jesus gives to his servants, his followers. So verses 18 through 20, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here we see the Lord Jesus declaring his authority over all things. And with that authority, he then commissions his servants to go and make disciples of all nations, of all peoples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that the Lord has commanded with a promise that he will be with them by his Holy Spirit, empowering them, leading them, helping them to accomplish this great task. And then he physically ascended into heaven from where he will eventually return to establish his kingdom. In the parable, just before the nobleman departs into the far country back in Luke 19, uh, to receive the kingdom, he calls his servants and gives them a command. He gives each of them a minna, which would have been worth you know, about the equivalent of 100 days' wages. Uh, nothing to sneeze at, but not a, a great amount. Um, and he gives them this commission then to engage in business with the minna that he provided them until he returns. Just like the disciples in Matthew, Matthew 28, these servants know exactly what was expected of them. And they know that their master will return. And he will return as king. But the next verse lets us know something else about the, con the context with which they'll be seeking to obey their master's command. Look at verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So it will be within a country where the citizens hated the one whom these servants were called to serve. They would no doubt face opposition for serving their master within such a place. If they show loyalty and devotion to their Lord, they may very well suffer for it. They may be tempted to either you know, keep quiet of who they are supposed to serve here. Or they may feel the pressure from those around them not to obey what their master had commanded. I mean, he's not going to be around anyway. He's, he's, he's left. Life may be a lot easier for them if they just not take their master's commission seriously. And for the citizens of, of Jericho here, the story would have resonated with them. For about 30 years prior to this, Herod the Great was about to split up his his mini kingdom among his three sons, uh, giving Judea and Samaria to his son Archelaus. But of course, this plan had to receive the approval of Caesar in Rome. So Archelaus uh, went off to Rome to, in essence, receive the kingdom from Caesar Augustus. But before he left to do this, there was a riot in the temple at Jerusalem uh, during Passover. And Archelaus, in an attempt to show his power and control, had over 3,000 Jews killed. And in doing so, he was just following the murderous ways of his father, who was the Herod who had the boys of Bethlehem killed in order to attempt to get rid of the baby Jesus as a rival king. So history tells us that 50 Jews of Judea were sent to Rome to appeal to Caesar not to to allow Archelaus to be their king. But they lost their appeal, 
Archelaus did eventually become king over them, and he even had a palace built right there in Jericho where Jesus was teaching this parable. Now, Jesus is not saying that he is like the wicked king Archelaus, but he is making it clear how difficult it would be for his servants to obey his commands within a society that is opposed to their king. And brothers and sisters, that is the world that Christians have lived and served Jesus within since his departure into heaven. It is most definitely the society that each of us are living in here in America in the 21st century. We are called to be faithful with all that the Lord has entrusted to us with our careers, with our time, both on work days and on, weekday, and on weekends. We're called to be faithful with our education, our health, our family, our interactions with others day to day, with, with our money, with our homes, with our possessions and our abilities. We are to use them in service to him. We are to, to scheme how, how we can use what God has entrusted to us in order to influence others into the kingdom. We have been commissioned to make disciples and to teach his word to all kinds of people, knowing that we will face opposition. For many in our society hate Jesus. They hate him. And they will despise us for trying to lead others to convert to Christ and to follow him. But notice here, what Jesus is honoring from what his servants do. Notice what Jesus points out as the reason for rewarding his servants. Verse 17, he says, And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful. In a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The servant was, was not praised for his success. He was recognized for his faithfulness. His faithfulness to obey his Lord's command. To do what his Lord said to do. In the midst of a hostile society. One of my heroes died earlier this week. Merle was 92. Merle served as my visitation pastor at my former church in Iowa, but prior to that assignment, he served as a missionary in Congo, in Central Africa. When Merle was in college at Trinity in Deerfield, Illinois, in the early 50s, he heard a missionary speaking in chapel, sharing the need for laborers to go into the harvest field, and so Merle heard that call and simply said, sure, I'll go. Merle was not super gifted at really any one skill. He wasn't a great speaker. He wasn't a very strong leader. He was not a gifted teacher or evangelist. Merle was more like jack of all trades. He could do it all. Whatever needed done, he would try to get to work and use what, what little the Lord had given him and faithfully serve the Lord with all of his heart. And he faced opposition. He faced great opposition. He and his wife and family had to be evacuated from the Congo on three different occasions 
because their lives were in danger. But they always went back. He and his dear wife, Alita, then ended up serving the Lord in the Congo for 43 years. He was faithful. And now he's with the Lord. I'm looking forward to seeing how many cities the Lord will entrust to Merle in the new heavens and the new earth. I know it will be far more than he ever imagined. And brother and sister, the Lord is just calling you to be faithful to his command. To go and make disciples. So will you trust him? Will you believe what he said? Will you put your head down and get to work for his honor and his glory? In the end, you will never think that it wasn't worth it. Last section here, verses 20 through 27, there will be a reckoning for the wicked at the Lord's coming. Uh, Jesus doesn't end the parable on a happy note. Not everyone lived happily ever after in Jesus' story. No matter how much our culture loves to believe that they will. In our secular society, we like to pretend like there are no consequences for our unrighteousness and our refusal to humble ourselves before a holy God. But the story shows us otherwise. And we don't like to hear this. It bothers us. As I was studying this passage, I read a couple of different takes on it, uh, some from scholars who argued vehemently that we are definitely not to understand this as a warning against unbelievers who reject Jesus as their king. For Jesus would never respond to them in this way, particularly there in verse 27, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This bothers us so much because we, we tend to think that we are more righteous than Jesus, that, 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 that we are even more moral than he is. After all, our society has progressed, right? It's progressed so much so that, that we, we don't find anything wrong with sexual relationships outside of marriage. We don't find anything wrong with killing babies in the womb as a form of birth control, I mean, we, we, we've progressed. Those things really aren't sins. They really aren't morally wrong. Even though God's word clearly says that they are. So, my friends, this passage is in the Bible to, to wake us up to the reality that our society and we ourselves have been trying to put down and suppress. That is the reality that God is holy that God is sovereign, that he is just and cannot tolerate sin, wickedness, and lawlessness. And he's coming to judge the world. And all who have loved their sin more than him, all who have turned away from his grace and instead indulged their sinful appetites, they will all be held accountable. They will come under his wrath. They will pay for their sin themselves. God's word in Second in the Second Thessalonians chapter one seems to agree with what Jesus describes here in verse twenty-seven. So verse uh, 
1, or verse 7 through 10 of 2 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 1. I didn't mark it in my Bible, so I've got to find it here. Here it is. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. But it's not only the ones who will be outright rebellious who will be condemned. It will also be those who were known as the Lord's servants, but yet prove themselves to be unfaithful on the day of judgment. We are, we, we are showing the example here of the servant who, when he came to be held accountable for what he did with the minna that the returning king had entrusted to him, he just simply gave it back to him. He gave an excuse as to why he didn't do anything with it, saying that he really believed that, that the returning king was a severe man. He, he, he took what he did not deposit. He reaped what he did not sow. In other words, he accused his master of being a fraud. He, he admitted to being afraid to take any risks in order to serve him. And so in doing so, unlike the other servants who were faithful, this servant proved to be unfaithful giving excuses for his, for his disobedience. So how is he judged here by the returning king? Well, Jesus uses words like condemn and wicked and shows how the servant loses what he was entrusted with and, and instead it was given to one of the faithful servants. Jesus says, to the one who has, more will be given, and to the one, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away which I think simply points to the increased reward that faithful servants will receive at the judgment as well as utter, the, utter, the utter bankruptcy that will be revealed for those who claim to be the Lord's servants, but who really were just looking out for themselves and proved in the end that they really didn't know the Lord. And so we see Jesus say about such people back in Matthew chapter 7, depart from me, I never knew you. So as we close this parable for now, friends, we see three categories of people that on the day of judgment will be divided just into two. Those who are rewarded and those who are condemned. We see those who, who outright reject the Lord Jesus and who do not want him to reign over them or do not want him to reign over this world. They, they just reject him outright. They, they don't take his, world, his word seriously and they are living their lives completely outside of his rule. Maybe that is where you are at this morning. You don't enjoy listening to messages like this. Or quite frankly, you don't in, like listening to anything from the Bible, any Bible teaching. And Jesus is saying here that, that, that he knows you. He, he knows who you are. He knows your heart. And he cares enough about you to have you be here this morning listening to this to warn you you have an opportunity to repent. You have this opportunity to turn, to, to leave behind your sin and self-righteousness and get to know Jesus Christ. Get to know the one who can save you, who can redeem your life. And I urge you to come to him today. 
Or maybe you're, you're, you're more like the servant who proved to be unfaithful. You, you, you claim to be a servant of the Lord, but in reality, you, you don't really know who he is. You go through the motions of Christianity because your parents do or your family always has. But there is no love or joy in your heart for the Lord. You're just trying to, to get through life and do what's best for you. The Lord's interests really are not, not your interests. So again, this story is also for you. It's speaking to you. The Lord cares about your soul. He has given you this opportunity to turn, to, to repent, and begin to follow after Christ with your whole heart. Get to know him. Cry out to God for eyes to see who Jesus really is. And begin to seek him in his word, and he will not disappoint you. And finally, there is another category. That is you who are truly servants of the Lord, who simply believe in him, you trust what he says, you obey even in the midst of a hostile culture that is at enmity with God and those who take him seriously. And the Lord is saying to you, I see you, I am with you, and I'm coming back to bless you, not to condemn you. For before he ascended into heaven to receive his kingdom from the one who were presented to him, our Lord Jesus went to Jerusalem, and he faced that opposition head on. He was the one who was slaughtered on the cross. He was the one who was put to death in front of all those who hated him, who couldn't stand his righteousness. Our king laid down his life for us, for our rejection of him, for our unfaithfulness, for our unbelief. And this meal this morning we are about to partake of reminds us, it declares to us, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. You were bought with the precious blood of Christ. So therefore, brothers, honor him, glorify him in your body as we wait for his return.